This is Maureen Elward. You're listening to Backcast Cape Ann. The stories you hear as part of Backcast Cape Ann's series on the LBGTQ community highlights their contribution, care, and activism. It's a look back at experiences, significant moments, and persistent memories. For this episode in our series on the LBGTQ community, I speak with the Reverend Wendy Fitting, Minister Emeritus of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Gloucester. She retired in 2013, having spent 24 years as pastor at the church. Wendy graduated from Harvard Divinity School in 1989. She's a Gloucester resident. I graduated from a private girls' school in 1967, and I was desperate to be in New York City. I went to New York University, Washington Square College, and for, I think, my entire life, I had been... I don't want to say attracted because um, it wasn't a sexual attraction for me, but I'd been drawn to women. Um, and usually, you know, teachers, um, uh, mentors, um, people I respected, but really drawn to them. Um, I, I also had boyfriends um, when I went to NYU. Um, I had a couple of boyfriends, but... I was very much attached to my, my roommate in college. Um, and I had no language for, you know, I began to feel that there was something wrong with me, um, but I had no, no language for it. Um, I can't ever remember um, hearing, you know, the word gay or lesbian. Um, it, it, it's interesting thinking about that now because you know it's part of our, it's part of who we are, our culture. You know, it's uh, not a hidden word. So I, I went through some pretty rocky places. I moved to Boston with my boyfriend. Luckily, um, my school chum from NYU, Nancy Gardella, um, said to me, "You gotta read Jill Johnston's column in the Village Voice." And of course, the Village Voice was you know, something I read when I was in New York. And luckily, I was living in Brighton. Down on the corner was a shop that sold it. So every week, I went and read Jill Johnston, and that was it, because she had been a dance critic, but she came out and was writing what you probably call now a blog about being gay. Um, and, and that was it. I was um, probably, at the time, 23 years old. Um, and so I, I still had a boyfriend. I broke up with him. Um, I uh, went to the Cambridge Women's Center and got connected with um, gay women, lesbians, whatever you want to call them. That was amazing. Tell me a little bit about how you made your way to Cape Ann. Well, before I came to Cape Ann, you know, I was connected with the the Cambridge Women's Center, and and really got very involved in the in the lesbian community. You know, the lesbian feminist community, and and I want to say something about that because, um, you know, it it was very constricting. I mean, it was the age of political correctness, 
And, you know, I jumped into that world. Um, What's, what time frame are we talking about? This is like about? the 70s, early, early, very early 70s, 71, 72, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I characterize it by this image of we were all on the same bus, all these lesbians, and we, we all had to have the same haircuts and the same clothes, and we all had sort of freedom names. And there was a lot of... Um, pressure to say the right thing and not say the wrong thing. And it just rubbed against my, my sense of, you know, I'm an individual. You know, I did that for a number of years. Um, I, listen, <laughs> I listened to a lot of bad lesbian music and pretended to like it. I went to what the... Is, what is bad lesbian music? No, what I don't want to lesbian... name... <laughs> <laughs> it was all like, any woman can be a lesbian. Every woman basically is a lesbian. You know, it was like lesbian nation. Um, and so the political agenda in the lyrics kind of ruined the music. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I pretended to like this stuff because I wanted to fit in. But um, eventually, uh, you know, I just kind of broke out of there. And when I came out, I was working for a private detective agency um, in Boston and meeting all kinds of amazing people. Uh, a, a pretty edgy job, but you know, I was I was feeling like you know busting out of whatever Girl Scout camp, whether it was the Hartridge School for girls or the bus of the lesbian feminists. I mean, a tremendous source of being free and really finding out who I was. I mean, it was very liberating. So I didn't want to be contained. So part of this, um, you know, being sort of, you know, released to be out on my own journey, um, I had always wanted to be a Unitarian Universalist minister from the time I was a junior in high school. I was madly in love with Ralph Waldo Emerson. I was very committed to this idea, I and mean, it just felt right. One of the most liberating experiences that I had that really put me back on the path toward ministry was working at the Fernald State School in Waltham, which is the oldest institution in the Western Hemisphere for people labeled mentally retarded. And I went there to kind of <laughs> redeem myself from the detective agency, which was uh, pretty edgy. So six years I worked at Fernald as a ward attendant. Um, and I learned more about humanity at Fernald than I'd ever learned, you know, out in the world. Um, I worked with people who needed to be toilet trained, uh, learned to brush their teeth. Um, we were trying to prepare them for um, group homes out in the community. Um, they were labeled severe and profound, whatever that means. It was right at the time when uh, there was a consent decree in Massachusetts to improve the institutions and improve possibilities for people to live outside of them. So the doors were taken off the seclusion rooms. I mean, there was some pretty primitive stuff that was still going on uh, when I started working there. I had dropped out of NYU, so to move on in my job in the Department of Mental Health, I got a degree from the Antioch program in Cambridge, and then I worked at the central office, and then I worked at the Lindemann Center, and it had been 12 years altogether. 
and I, I really wanted to get out of that, um, that field. I uh, moved to Cape Ann, uh, wanted to get out of the city, um, and actually hadn't realized that I had ancestors buried there. My great-grandmother and her brother came from Sweden, lived in Pigeon Cove, and we'd visited once in a while. But, you know, I knew that Cape, I, I really always loved Cape Ann. So you lived in Rockport when you, when you moved up here. Yeah. And what was, was there a gay community here back, back um, in the 70s? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, it, you don't know, it's, um, I think for the most part, I think this is still true, it's been people who are coupled. So um, my, um, I, had to, I had to go away someplace, and I had a cat. Um, and um, my upstairs neighbor recommended uh, this woman, Jill, who took care of animals. And so when I got back, um, Jill had sort of perused my book collection and my records that probably had some of those old <laughs> bad lesbian. Anyway, so when I got back, she very, uh, very tentatively said, you know, I'm going to give you the gay discount. And I was like, oh, great. And so I got to know her and her partner, and they were great friends. And then another couple of women who were in Gloucester and a few others, but not many, um, not many, but, you know, it, it, it happened almost initially um, that, you know, I, I connected with uh, people who were gay, women mostly. Um, and so that made living up here even, you know, even, I was even more convinced. I didn't need a lot of convincing because I, I really wanted to be here. And I was still working and I commuted. Um, and then I quit. I applied to Divinity. I thought, this is the time. I got in and um, didn't have money, but it was the kind of opportunity that very few people have to realize their dream of what they want. I was attracted to parish ministry, but the thing that I knew best was that I wanted to be on Cape Ann. So when I was finished, just about finished um, with my degree, I was asked to uh, check out this uh, job at the Gloucester Church. And the Gloucester Church was, you know, I didn't even know it existed. I know the one in Rockport, but it was on its way out. I mean, it was moribund. There was a <laughs> there was a no trespassing sign on the front of that unbelievably beautiful building that said, no trespassing, police take notice. So they were um, really on the edge of maybe even closing. So I applied for a job that was partially funded by the Unitarian Universalist Association, to, specifically to help, um, you know, a failing, a dying church, you know, to revive a dying church. And, uh, you know, it, a friend of mine said, <clears throat> You know, even even if you called this fiction, you wouldn't believe it. Because <clears throat> here I was doing the thing th that I really love to do, <clears throat> living in the place that I loved and finding a job basically right next door. So, you know, there was no question in my mind that if I got hired, I would do it, which I did. Now, the woman who was the representative of the Unitarian Universalist Association met with the board at the Gloucester Church, most of whom were, you know, people who'd been there, who'd grown up there, whose parents grew up there, um, and were elderly. And she, um, she didn't ask me, and I would have told her not to do this, but she 
<clears throat> she kind of outed me. She told them that I was gay. And <laughs> they had met me briefly, um, but it threw them for a loop. I mean, they, they took a while to catch their breath. And I kind of waited for them to do that because this goes back to the bus, right? It's not an in-your-face issue for me. I'm a lot of things. <laughs> we all are. When, especially with folks who aren't um, used to out gay people, being out, right? I wanted them to know me as a person um, and not have that label kind of affix itself to me and, you know, kind of obscure everything else that I was. You know, my eye color, my height, my, my philosophy, my humor, you know, everything that you are. Um, it, 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 there are tons of things that we are. But if for people who aren't familiar and may be scared, um, all they would see was, you know, she's a dyke. <laughs> so so um, I, you know, I didn't get mad. I wasn't mad at all. I thought... It was a bonehead move on the part of this woman from the UUA, who actually a friend, but they wound up hiring me. I knew that the way that we were going to save the church and bring people in was that first we had to establish trust. I recognized that this was their sacred place, so I didn't come in with an agenda to change everything and make it, you know... Um, friendly to young people or just we we needed to build trust. So this was a Cape Ann first. You were a woman. And short. And, <laughs> and gay. <laughs> you're a woman, you're short, and you're gay. And this was, a, well, th this is a significant moment for Cape Ann and yeah. a church in, yeah. on Cape Ann, especially a church with such an incredible history yeah. of firsts. And they, they go ahead and they hire you. Yeah, they, it really was a leap of faith. If I had gone after them with a complaint or, you know, some sort of homophobic blah, blah, it would never have worked. It wouldn't have worked. Um, and that's just not my wiring. Um, so, yes, we, it's all about building trust in relationships and, um, you know, acknowledging they're that original group of people, mostly women, very powerful women, um, had devoted, you know, tremendous time and love and energy into that church. And I appreciated that tremendously. Um, and you know, I guess there's a certain amount of uh, courage that, you know, I'll say that goes into this. Um, I, you know, didn't feel afraid. I didn't feel afraid that you know, they were, I didn't know they were going to, because I was gay, they were going to egg my house or something, but not at all, not at all. I knew who I was. I knew that if I let them get to know me, which I did, that we would be okay. We'd be okay. And we were. So you took the church forward in so many different ways. And I would love for you to tell the story about 
a marriage, Mm -hmm. a special marriage that happened in 1994. One of the things that over a period of time and with a lot of basis in trust we uh, did at the church was we started an aid support group. And I had gotten involved even before I started at the church. They had hired me, but I hadn't actually started the the Cape Ann AIDS uh, Health Project was 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 going, and um, you know I knew the people who were starting it and um, was involved in that. And through that, I met Peter Stickle. Um, Peter Stickle is a violinist. Um, he lives in Wakefield now, and I met a lot of great people and a lot of gay people, mostly gay men. But that was an extension then of the gay community. The people who and you know the church. Um, you know, we had established enough rapport and trust that, um, you know, one night a week there was a, an AIDS support group at the church. It was uh, people who were living with HIV and their spouses or loved ones all together, mostly people who were IV drug users. Um, and I think that was a first um, on Cape Ann, that support group. And we were very careful about people's privacy. But anyway, I met Peter um, and then. Uh, he got together with John Bumstead. Great love story. John Bumstead is a um, cellist, and they started the New England String um, Ensemble, and they fell in love, and they came and said, you know, we want to get married, and I said, great. I knew it would happen. I just knew. I knew that there was work to be done on that or some hand-holding or questions answered, so we met, and we planned, and they said, um, you know, they said a date like June um, that didn't work in that year's calendar. And they said, oh, no, we're, we're planning this for a year. It's a year from June because they wanted to involve their families, and they knew it would take time. They said, you know, we're going to invite everybody from the church to come and, you know, stuff like that. So I, <laughs> I you know, I figured out, you know, some sort of good political tools, and there's nothing wrong with them. Um, I knew that I had to get the support of the pillar of the church, who was also at the time the chair of the board. And this is Mrs. Toomey, who was the head of the Women's Guild. Um, She was very powerful, the most powerful person in the church. And so I went to her house, and I used to visit people at home. I mean, that was part of the thing, the culture, which was great. Um, So I went to her house, and I said, um, I, I would like to have your support for this. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to ask permission because I wouldn't do that with a straight couple. But I'd like the board's support because this, <laughs> this is different. And she said, you know, who else knows about this? <laughs> and I said, I'm coming to you first. She said, all right. I told her about John uh, and Peter. So she said, okay. And at the board meeting, she said, Wendy, wants to ask us for her support on this issue. And I explained it to the board, and, you know, there was a little pale, (laughs) 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 you know, a little silence. And, you know, I just want to say it was Becky Parnell. Uh, Both of these women are of blessed memory. Becky Parnell, who'd been a universalist forever, said it would be against our principles to not support this. The wedding was great, but I think that that behind the scenes stuff that happens, that process was remarkable and and wonderful. Remarkable in the sense of it ought to be remarked on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then toward the end of that year, 
<laughs> some of the people, some of the women were getting um, nervous. So we met again, a number of the women who in the church at Virginia Toomey's house, and I said, you can ask me anything. And I meant it. Because the perceptions, I knew the perceptions about gay people were so sexualized that that was a barrier. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it, it kind of still is in a way, and, and that's, a, that's a problem. But, and Doris McPhee, also of blessed memory, said, well, why can't they just be friends? And I said, Doris, they are friends. They're really, really close friends. <laughs> Um, and I think um, meeting with the people, saying, yes, you can ask me any question. I'm not going to report you to the gay police. And so a number of the women came to the wedding. And, you know, they had all kinds of preconceptions about gay weddings, you know, that weren't. And this was their sacred room. That's the other thing. Jenny said to me, why can't you marry them in your office? And I said, well, I'm there every Sunday. She said, well, that's different. <laughs> so it was in the sanctuary, their sanctuary, their sacred room. And it was gorgeous. It was, you know, very formal wedding. They had um, uh, the flautist from the BSO was doing the music, was fantastic. Um, and luckily, they had done a Christmas concert uh, the winter before. And, you know, the, everybody came, all the people, the community, and all of the people from the church came, and they knew who this was, Peter and John. It was their orchestra. And so when John spoke at the wedding, he said, you know, this is a very important church to me. Um, we did a concert here, and everyone was welcoming. I mean, it was a love fest. <laughs> and... They were, the women in the pews loved this wedding, went to this wonderful reception, everybody was welcome, and um, they were proud of what they had done. And I was. About a week later, uh, there was a fire in the church. Uh, was set in one of the um, uh, the wells uh, by one of the outside window the windows to the to the vestry to the basement, and it didn't amount to anything. Thank God, thank God, thank thank you, Gloucester <laughs> Fire Department. And then a few days later, I was on the lawn of the church, and a car drove by on Church Street, and somebody yelled, "Next time we'll burn it down." So I would say that there was a. <laughs> There was somewhat of an intimidation attempt. I didn't report it to the police or anything. I just, I, ha I had a very strong feeling that this was, I mean, I love Gloucester. Gloucester is full of all kinds of different kinds of people. I mean, when I first moved here, um, there were people who were sort of our eccentrics. <laughs> there was the catnip man and there were, you know, all these great people that's changing. We still have those eccentrics. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, we gotta. We gotta. Take I don't care think of we'll ever change. <laughs> it is. We'll never. Change. It's a welcoming community in a very different way than the gay community in the city. You know, the bus. And what's the difference that you see? I would. I would say that it's much more integrated. Um, the separate thing I get because 
you know, people were in danger. I mean, when I was at NYU, I lived in the West Village, and I was coming home from school. It was dark. It was night. I walked right through the Stonewall, two nights of the Stonewall uh, riots, demonstrations. It was dangerous, you know, to be out and gay. Very dangerous. It still is, I think, in places. So you tend to retreat into, with your own people. Um, that makes sense for safety and, you know, just for relationships and support and all that kind of stuff and, and to celebrate your culture. People on Cape Ann tend to have come to settle. And because, especially Gloucester, I don't want to diss Rockport, but especially Gloucester is a community where you can have a place even if you're the 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 catnip man i mean so there's less there's much less of a stigma and the people who come uh the gay people who live here they're not in this sort of mode of in your face i'm gay do you have a problem with that you know it's not a sexualized thing which is great because that can be a barrier not every community and not just any community would be a place where you could just be a neighbor um, who's gay, who's married or partnered, and you know your neighbors invite you over for supper, and you invite them over for supper. Um, it, it, it's a context that I think most people take for granted that gay people haven't had. You know, if you were in a relationship and you were gay, you you didn't have the kind of familial surrounding support that a lot of us would take for granted so that if you're having a problem, right, you're in this sort of uh, isolated partnership, you can't, you know, just go over and t sit down and talk to your mom, you know, or your neighbor. Um, in, in Gloucester, there was much more of a possibility and realized possibility of, of that kind of integration. So it's a two-way. It's Gloucester, and it's, you know, gay people who... who you know, who don't want to be isolated, who want to be in a real place with a root system, you know? What are you seeing today, you know, as you experience this, you know, gay equality, uh, mm -hmm. gay marriage is legal, and certainly there's a much more open uh, society. Young people seem to be moving that straight forward, and mm -hmm. that is fantastic to see. What are you, some of your feelings as the gay community comes into its own, it seems. Yeah. Is that the right thing to say? Yeah, I think so. I think we have been. I think if you find a context like Gloucester, what we need as people in relationships um, with our broader community, you know, the kind of support that you would get from family, from friends, you can't have a good relationship in, in a vacuum. Gloucester has has provided those contexts. My basic feeling about this exploration with uh, gender identity and transgender and all that is it's akin to what we know about the universe, that it's expanding. <laughs> and that's the way, you know, I, I always approach the church, that we open the doors wider and wider because that's, you know, and it takes courage, but that's what the universe is doing, so we better get with the program. I had a great friend who was a member of the church, and he's gone to God now too, but, you know, he was a transsexual transvestite, and I mean, I have photographs of Kevin at the old-timers bar on, like, St. Patrick's Day, sitting on some guy's lap, and you would never know 
that this adorable, beautiful woman, Kevin was slight, was a guy. I mean, <laughs> and he's sitting on this guy's lap. And, it, 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 you know, it's like these things are possible. I mean, he took risks. He was kind of on the vanguard. Um, but, uh, and, you know, he died peacefully. Thank God he didn't get murdered or anything, but, um, they, which used to happen. Um, but it's expanding. And now there are people who are, have family members who have gone through uh, gender uh, reassignment mm -hmm. process. Um, here in Cape Ann. What is something that you'd like to say to young people today who are finding their way just like you did when you were 23? Well, I think the first thing that I would say is be careful, but trust. Be brave. If possible, don't isolate yourselves in gay or whatever uh, enclave. Make sure to build yourself um, a really trustworthy support system so that you can, um, when you need to, take a step back to a safe place. I think the most important thing is that, is your happiness, is your happiness. Um, be who you are. Uh, to me, happiness is the greatest value. Um, and it's not the kind of happiness that you get from getting a new car. It's the happiness that you get from wonderful things that happen by surprise, um, usually in relationship. Um, when, you know, your mom and dad says, I get it, whether it's transgender or gay or bi or, you know, whatever. Um, there's a whole alphabet now of, of ways that we can be. Um, the thing that I would say most is make it about love and not sex. Um, we, we had to get in people's faces, you know, about sex, which is, you know, and it freaked them out. Um, I think it's an affectional orientation, whatever it is. First of all, it's a true, true to yourself. But um, we, we, we have tended to alienate people with our, you know, with getting in their faces as angry and enraged as we were legitimately were and can be. That's not, I don't think that makes us happy. I don't think that builds relationships. So. Um, there needs to be safe places for your anger, your joy, um, but your happiness is expanding. I mean, it's part of the larger world. It really is all about love, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And that's how people change. Well, Wendy Fitting, thank you so much for You're being welcome. on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thanks very much. Backcast Cape Ann is a production of 1623 Studios. This show was produced by me, Maureen Elward, with technical assistance from Becky Tober. Find Backcast Cape Ann on 1623 Studios, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all our podcast episodes on 1623studios.org.